I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 22nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we return to our conversation with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. Then we talk with the producer of the new documentary, Fannie Lou Hamer's America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The governor announced yesterday two new executive orders focused on military families in Mississippi. MPB's Kobe Vance reports. Governor Tate Reeves has signed two executive orders. One establishes a council for servicemen and women living on military bases in the state to converse with lawmakers and potentially improve their quality of living. And Governor Reeves says a second order creates a program in schools to help the approximately 7,000 children of active military families living in Mississippi who must often move during their parents' time in service. A school that bears the military star will let families know that Mississippi schools will not only give their children the educational skills to be life, college, and ultimately workforce ready, but this school also supports their well-being as the child of a military-connected family. The program will operate under the Department of Education, and to qualify, a school must meet several criteria. Designate a staff member as military ambassador, make resources available on school websites, maintain a transitioning program, and offer training for teachers and staff on the issues facing military students. State Superintendent Dr. Carrie Wright says the ambassadors at the school can help make these major life transitions easier for students. Those kinds of documentations that need to go back and forth are handled in in a very fast manner. I think that's the one thing we want to make sure that they're coming in, they're feeling welcomed, they're in an environment they feel is safe and sound, and that their families are also feeling welcomed and realizing that that communication has got to start from the moment that we know that children are coming in. Military advocates say there are roughly 20,000 children of military families living in the state when accounting for National Guard and Reserve officers. Children of active service families will likely change schools six to nine times during their education, according to the Department of Defense. Kobe Vance, MPB News. After the break, we talk with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Today, we return to our conversation with Mississippi Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. Hoseman is a Republican. Over the past several weeks, he's played a key role in one of the more intriguing state legislative sessions in recent history. We left off talking with the Lieutenant Governor about the war chest of federal infrastructure dollars the state has yet to spend. Hoseman now speaks again with MPB's Michael Guidry. I've talked to representatives that represent parts uh, of the state away from the capital city who who are strong on the messaging of, of, of investing in Jackson and where Jackson goes, the state will go. There's been lots of talk about the troubles in Jackson regarding crime, regarding the, the, the aging and failing infrastructure there. How do you feel about using this money to, to invest in the capital city? Of course, we're going to match what Jackson puts up for its water and sewer. I think their, their ask was $86 million. And um, we're, uh, I think they have, they've got about $40 million, I believe, in our money. So that, that would about work. We'd put up 40 and they'd put up 40 or 43 whatever that came to. Uh, that's one thing. But that's not all for Jackson. It's, it's critical to me. We started this several years ago. For example, we, we have two judges now that, we, that we're paying for, the state is paying for, to accelerate the judicial system here. We're paying for two additional uh, district attorneys to prosecute those cases. They actually have had some cases in, in my own office, in the uh, Legislative Budget Office in the Woolfolk Building. We've offered that as a uh, place to have these hearings and stuff. I have pressed hard for Jackson to open its jail. We, did, we don't have a jail. And I have been for months been asking them to open the jail. I actually got it appraised at about $800,000 to open it back up. We have no... I used to put people in a temporary basis until such times as we go forward. And, and talking with Coach, I mean, with Chief Davis, uh, these are repeat offenders, a lot of them. So why are they still walking? Why can't we put them in jail for a day or two until such time as we can figure out what all they've, they've done? I've had a meeting in my office with Sean Tindall, the head of public service, uh, uh, public safety, uh, the new sheriff, Tyrone, uh, Chief Davis, and me, and we spent couple of hours going over how we can help these people we're increasing the police by the cost of the citizens of the state of mississippi by 56 people the capitol police so we're we're that meeting was about how we're going to increase the police force here in in jackson taking care of the central mississippi district which runs from jackson state around to the university so we we literally are pouring money in here uh, in, in addition to the money that we that we allocate for roads, uh, we're basically doing roads, the judiciary, uh, policing, uh, all kinds of things. And uh, we're committed. We, we need a viable city. And uh, I'm, I am personally, I live here, my children live here, my grandchildren live here. Uh, I'm committed to, to having a viable capital city. I'm committed to having a viable Jackson. And we're doing all of those things right now without really them asking for that much. I have more question. It has to do with one of your, your major campaign promises, and we've seen some of the work that you've done um, mm-hmm. the last few years, and that's you know, investing in education, especially teacher pay. Mm-hmm. You have a plan that came out of the Senate. The House has their plan. That One of the first things that came out, um, it looks to be that you know, these are headed to conference. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess my, my question is why why the Senate plan? What makes well, What is your pitch for, for the Senate plan when it comes to – not just attracting teachers, but retaining teachers and keeping quality education in Mississippi. Well, the 
The first thing I think is we we started, and Senator DeBar has been just awesome. Uh, he's our education chairman. He had five hearings all over the state of Mississippi. He didn't just come sit in the Capitol and come up with a plan. He spoke to hundreds of teachers across the state of Mississippi, and they came up with what they needed. And the Senate plan not only rewards you more dollars over the next two years for teachers, but that's not the only thing. It staggers the time that they get them. We were losing people in that third, fourth, and fifth year, so you get a bump if you stay that fifth year, and then you start your bumps earlier and your raises earlier. So basically our plan was designed by teachers for teachers, and that's not just about the money. It's how it's structured and how it was paid to them, and that's one of the one of the things. I, I think our plan is, is, is clearly better but than the House plan in this regard based on the fact that we actually talked to teachers. It wasn't just something we came up with uh, when we showed up here in January. That being said, they're very close, and so they'll work that out, and we'll get uh, hopefully get our teacher pay raise where I, I could ought to be. The other peripheral things that are very important to me are us looking at year-round schools in Mississippi on a quarterly basis. Now, Corinth to Gulfport is doing this. I want our schools to be able to do this. I want to make sure that if we need to give them some money for that transition year, we do that. But that nine weeks on and three weeks off gives us the ability to have children in class much longer in a stable environment in which they get fed and they're not off where they can get into trouble or somebody else will get them into trouble. Uh, uh, their mentors many times are their coach or their uh, teacher or whatever. That all is an ongoing basis. Right now, we kind of educate up to about April. Then we te- you know, prepare for the test, and that's May, June, July, and August you come back. So you, really when you look at it four or five months out of the year, we're not in the education spectrum. I want to be in a continuous education spectrum. Give them three weeks off to recharge your batteries for the teachers too. They like that. But then get them back in class. Get them in a safe environment. Get them where they've got mentors. Get them where there's people checking on them. Now, yeah, you know in Mississippi – um, and I've helped fill these out. At Friday afternoons, they put food in these backpacks for these children because they're not going to eat till Monday. So you, we've got a, there are other things in the education spectrum. Dual credit is a really big important. We're going to double our early learning collaboratives this year. Again, we doubled them last year to where our young people can get to class quicker, can get to schooling quicker. I think that's important. The best economic development tool we have is an educated child. It's not a tax break. And you don't start with at age 18 saying, I'm going to get somebody to learn to be a welder. They have to read and write and math and all the other things, that skills that they have. So I think that preliminary part is critical to us. And that's a longer term. It's not an immediate thing you see. But if you're thinking about representing where Mississippi is going to be in 5 and 10 and 15 years, you'd look like I'm looking. That year-round school, is that is that something you're considering making, uh, you know, pushing for like a statutory change? Or is that something to give the school districts the ability to do and the support from the legislature if they choose to do so? The latter. We want to make some economic ability for them to do it without making an economic decision. Some, some places may not be able to do that. But gradually, uh, you know, if we came back and we had this interview 10 years from now, we were going to be laughing about why, why people took so long to do it. So I think you'll you'll see it go. Some some of my districts are more economically challenged. We'll need some help. We're trying to do that this year. But in addition to that, some commu- the communities have to buy into it. The teachers in each one. So we've got 139 school district, I think, or so. So each one will make its own decisions as it goes. But you will see a gradual and then a a 
more of a rush towards doing this because it's the best way for us to keep our kids safe and educated. And uh, the teachers, by the way, every teacher I've talked to that's in this system loves it. They're real frank about it. They say, by March, I'm just sick of these kids. I've been with them eight months, and they're sick of me. But you give me this nine weeks and three weeks off where I can go be with my own children or do some advanced education myself or the kids take some AP course in history or something, everybody seems to like this, and it's clear to me that it's a a boost to the education and the cultural structure. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hudson, we thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Still ahead, we talk with the producer of the new documentary film, Fannie Lou Hamer's America. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The new documentary, Fannie Lou Hamer's America, debuts tonight at 8 p.m. on MTV. MPB TV. Oh, that was close there. The film traces Mrs. Hamer's life story, including her childhood in the Jim Crow Mississippi Delta, and makes use of a trove of archival archival audio recordings. Monica Land, who's Fannie Lou Hamer's niece, produced the project, and she tells us Fannie Lou Hamer's America is part of her broader work to preserve her aunt's legacy. I've always wanted to do film. I love history, any kind of history, and so it just seemed appropriate that I put those two things together um, eventually. And so I had the idea around 2005 Um, began to try to look for a team that would help me accomplish this in 2007. Uh, I went to my cousin, Sula Hamer, who was a feature film producer. So she connected me to Keith Beauchamp, who had just done the untold story of Emmett Lewis Teal. And so Keith was like, you know, I've always wanted to do a film on Fannie Lou Hamer. Keith connected me to um, Dr. Davis Houck, who is a Fannie Lou Hamer historian at Florida State. Davis connected me to Dr. Megan Parker Brooks, who to me is the foremost um, Fannie Lou Hamer expert historian. She's also a Fannie Lou Hamer author. And then we connected with Joy, um, our director and editor. I've seen so many segments on Aunt Fannie Lou in other documentaries like uh, Eyes on the Prize, um, Freedom Summer, and such. I had never seen anything completely dedicated to her, and I had never seen anything that uh, explored her personal life, her family life. And I thought, that's just bizarre, because I'd heard stories about her my entire life growing up, um, still hearing stories about her. And so I thought it would just be awesome to show that different side of her to audiences. But what happened with a lot of the research, which Megan had already laid the foundation as a historian, as we began to find more and more archival footage, um, go through and transcribing the speeches, the television footage we found, the television programs, we didn't have enough archival footage to support that storyline. Well, you were able to get enough audio that made it very interesting in terms of just having her 
tell her story. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the audio, um, well, I, I won't say that the audio was not a problem because we had so much of it, but you're correct in the sense of putting it together chronologically. That was a challenge for our director and editor. And so it was a lot of trans- transcription involved. And um, that's what Megan and Joy and I did. We did a lot of transcribing. That's what I was speaking to about hats. Anytime we found a television program that she had done or an interview or a news segment, you know, we would transcribe that so we could try to piece this story together chronologically. You know, it's it's kind of like, you know, when you're digging for something like water or oil and, and, and you scratch that surface and it just continues to filter out, that's what we were finding with this. I mean, we were pretty much done with the film about a month or so ago, and we were looking for a particular piece, a particular sound bite, and our assistant editor, um, she found it something that none of us had ever heard before. But in a lot of cases, we're finding, because we found so much footage by mistake, that it was not labeled uh, properly. Um, she was, the, the footage was perhaps labeled by a physical description of her because the media outlets did not think at that time what, what she said was important enough to attribute it to her name. And so possibly it was just listed as, and and I hate this, but I'm just going to say, you know, as an example, portly black woman speaking at voting rights, about about voting rights registration. They didn't even put her name on it. And so we're finding things like that. That's what we're finding by accident. We're looking for one thing and finding another. Let's talk a little bit about your aunt. Do you remember her at all? Were you... I, I know I'm not asking that right. <laughs> That's okay. That's was she living when you were a little girl? Yes. Yes. Yes, she was. And I, I do remember her. Um, I am uh, from Chicago. My mother is from Mississippi, and that's how Aunt Fannie Lou uh, is related. Uh, we are related. Uh, my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, and Aunt Fannie Lou's husband were brothers. And so when my mom would come, um, you know, come for the summers to visit her family, um, you know, my grandfather was adamant, you know, you need to go see your uncles, you know, your elderly uncles and aunts. And Aunt Fanny Lou and Uncle Pap were on that list. And so we would go to Ruleville and visit. Now, granted, um, I don't remember her well, but I remember very clearly seeing her a few times. I remember playing with her two youngest daughters. Um, I remember that when I saw her, because I was about nine or ten when she died, um, I remember her always lying down, um, but she was always so hospitable, so kind, so funny. Um, Anything that she had in the kitchen, in the fridge, on the stove, we were welcome to. She was just that kind of person. And I, I just, I regret that I did not recognize who she was. And I'm sure you know what I mean by that until I was a teenager, you know, and I began to investigate her history, who she was, you know, um, what she had done. And then, unfortunately, the more I, you know, had the desire to learn more about her, to start documenting the stories, everyone who really knew the close, close, personal hidden stories were gone. 
What is important that people understand about your aunt today, her legacy? I know that um, she was quite a force at the 1964 Democratic Convention, and it was really her who helped turn the tide on getting the 1965 Voting Rights Act because of her impassioned speech. Yes, the MFDP and Aunt Fannie Lou were very um, influential in that, and that's also um, part of the of the legacy. Um, I'm not by any means trying to diminish Dr. King's efforts or any of the other activists at that time, but when you think about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that's who most people think of is Dr. King, and rightly so, because he was a very big part of it, but so was she and others like her. And so I would, again, I would just like to see her recognized. She did a lot of work. The women, like Aunt Fannie Lou and Ella Baker and Dorothy Hyde, they laid the groundwork where the men could go out and be vocal um, and be observed by so many. Um, but the women were in the trenches as well. And, you know, just to know that she sacrificed so very much. Um, I can even say that she sacrificed her family because she had one. She had four adopted daughters. She had a husband, but she admittedly was on the road all the time. People were always asking her, can you come help do this? Can you come and help do that? We need to go and talk to this person. Would you come and speak? And she did that for the greater good because she wanted everyone to have what she called basic human rights. She didn't want civil rights because that could be taken away. But human rights are what you had coming as a human being. And that's what she wanted. Again, she wasn't fighting for black. She wasn't fighting for whites. She just wanted equality for everyone. And she sacrificed so much to try to accomplish that. And I think it's sad that here we are 50 plus years later, and people are still trying to fight for the very things that she spoke of then.